This is the Hearts and Minds podcast, conversations about investing and impact. Welcome back to the Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm Maggie O'Neill, Head of Marketing Operations. Thank you for joining us today. Hearts and Minds Investments is a unique ASX listed investment company, which has two objectives, to maximise long-term returns to shareholders, while also providing vital financial support to leading Australian medical research institutes. So why do we start a podcast? Well, every day we are privileged to engage in meaningful conversations that stretch our understanding of the world and the impact that we're making. And we wanted to invite you on these conversations to hear from the brilliant minds that are part of the Hearts and Minds ecosystem. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by Chief Investment Officer, Charlie Lanchester. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Maggie. How are you doing today? I'm good. Very excited to be part of another terrific conversation. Yes, I'm loving this series. It's a great insight into the managers that we work with. So who will we be speaking to today? Yeah, look, one of the great privileges of this job is just meeting some of the core managers mm. and spending time with them. So uh, today we have Nick Griffin, founding partner and CIO of Munro Partners, one of our core managers now. He's been managing global longshore equity mandates for over 15 years and has also been selected as a Sown Hearts and Minds conference fund manager for five years in a row. And I think, you know, that's probably something of a record, Maggie, you would know better than me. But um, not only has he done it five years in a row, but his stock picks have actually been probably one of the best of all the conference fund managers. And one of the reasons he's now been selected as a core manager within the portfolio. Yes, certainly. And not only does Nick manage to pick outstanding stocks each year, but he's a master storyteller. um, I've had the privilege of working with him and his team ahead of the conferences each year. And just the work that goes in behind the scenes to nail that eight minute pitch is just incredible. It's not an easy task at all to distill your investment thesis and often explain quite a complex story in such a short amount of time. And yet he nails it every time. Yeah, look, uh, I don't envy those fund managers that have to get up in front of 600 people this year, you know, at the Opera House in front of their peers and clients. Mm. Uh, It's a pretty tough gig, but clearly I've seen Nick do uh, one of his presentations in the past. He's a natural. And I I think this year we've got one of his offsiders, Kieran, coming along, but he will be equally good. I'm sure of it. So in this conversation, uh, we talk about a lot of things and I particularly loved hearing how Nick approaches and, and picks his winning stocks and navigates the unpredictable world of investments, including those somewhat unexpected outcomes, which I suppose you come to expect in the world of investing. You also talked at length about his perspective on public versus private markets, which I know is a, a topic of interest for you, and the structural growth changes that are driven by AI, climate change, the retail sector, those really big secular trends that we're facing at the moment. It was certainly a fascinating conversation to be privy to. It was a wide-ranging conversation, that's for sure. And look, I've really enjoyed meeting Nick and the team at Munro Partners. Recently, we went down to Melbourne mm. and talked about the stocks that they recommended in the portfolio and their detailed analysis and the presentation they gave yeah, to so us thorough. was uh, incredibly thorough. So they are our wonderful core manager. And uh, yeah, look, it's, it was a pleasure to speak to Nick today. And I think um, everyone will enjoy the conversation. Yeah, well, let's get into it. Welcome, Nick Griffin of Munro Partners uh, to the Hearts and Minds podcast series. Um, it's great to have you here, Nick. No, thanks for having me, Charlie. Wonderful. Well, look, maybe uh, as an opening question, we could discuss the Munro Partners name. I know that it comes from the name of uh, a series of mountains or, or in the, in Scotland. Maybe why did you choose that name? Yeah, so, so look, it's it's a long story, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the short one. Uh, so, so I spent a lot of my career living and working in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I was there very early on as an oil and gas analyst. And I met my wife there and I've been going back for many years and I even went back for a period after we moved back here for a number of years. So I've been about sort of 10 years all up in living and working in Edinburgh. And yeah, we really, I've got to meet a lot of the great Edinburgh fund managers. What a lot of people don't realise about Edinburgh is they run, you know, sort of more money than all of Australia has in superannuation. So more than a trillion dollars in assets under management. But, but you know, the city's like 
the same size as Geelong or Newcastle. And some of the fund managers are, you know, in some cases over 100 years old. So they, they sit in this faraway place and they take really long-term views of the world. And, and so when I came back to Australia in 2016 and, and set up Monroe Partners, uh, the word Monroe is just a bit of a homage to, to those great Edinburgh fund managers that, I, that I'd got to look at and got to know over all those years and got to understand. And, you know, we wanted to, we, we like the way they do things and we wanted to do things a similar way that they do. Munro's just to finally finish that thing is, you know, they are mountains in Scotland over 3,000 feet. There are 282 of them. They were surveyed in the early 1900s. And your goal, if you, if you live and work in Edinburgh, is to go climb them all. So it's called Baggy Munro's. And I see a female actually just broke the record of climbing all of them in, in, in 31 days, yeah. uh, which is incredibly hard to do, but she did it. She just broke the record that's been around for a while. But that's that, that's sort of where the story, come, where the name come from. It's quite hard to come up with a name for a, for a fund management firm uh, with, with significance. And I, I do like that. So you started your career, you were, you were on, the, on the sell side, I think, at that point in time. What was it that attracted you to, to, to funds management and to, to make that that cross and how did it come about uh, initially? Yeah, no, it's actually, actually, well, I might have, I might have left it off the CV. I did start on the buy side, but originally, but it was a long time back. I started actually in Sydney with Commonwealth Financial Services, that then became part of Colonial, and then went into Commonwealth Bank, and then and then came out again. So I was there on a graduate program for three years, covering Australian equities, and then. I did what any good Australian did at the time is I gave up a perfectly good job with a perfectly good career path working for perfectly nice people to put a backpack on and travel the world and ended up in London like a lot of my peers did around that time in the mid-90s. You know, it was it was $3 to the pound at the time and, um, you know, that's how you saw the world was to go get a job in London. I came the other way at the same time. Yeah, you came the other <laughs> way, yeah. And uh, yeah, I lived and worked in London and then and then obviously got the job up in Edinburgh working for the Deutsche Bank oil and gas team on the sell side, um, where we were the number one ranked oil and gas team in the world. Uh, Deutsche Bank owned Wood McKenzie, worked with some very smart people there. We covered oil and gas and I did that for about five years before obviously coming back here and then switching to the buy side again uh, at, at K2 Asset Management and then and then ultimately starting Munro after that. Yeah, and talk me through, I think it's very interesting and I listened to one of your podcasts, actually, where you talked about this yearning to, to, to manage a fund and to be making all those decisions uh, yourself. I think you know, every fund manager strives for the day when they're making the decisions. They're not the analyst. Um, there's no one telling them what to do. Do you remember that first day and h- how did it come about? Yeah, okay. So, the, yeah, I mean, everyone who's attracted to fund managers, funds management, I think is pretty much attracted to, the, to one thing, which is that unlike a lot of industries in the world, this is an industry where you are judged you know, by your performance. It's fairly black and white and, you know, it's a fairly black and white outcome. And so you're clearly attracted to, you know, the the yearning or I suppose the desire to be able to prove yourself, to prove that you are smarter or better at this than the other guy. That's, that's I suppose, goes without saying. And then, yeah, wanting to be able to do it yourself is, is just merely to say, look, we think we've got a way of solving this performance problem. We think we can do it ourselves. And so that's, you know, we pre- built up a track record for a long period of time at our previous firm and, you know, compounded at double digits for more than 10 years and we felt they had the problem solved and so we wanted to to bring that to the market and bring that to other people and so that's that's why we launched the business but that's that's I suppose where the yearning comes from and that's why we that's we got we had the track record we built it up all the way you know over a 10-year period and so it was time to launch it as its own fund and and thankfully it has been successful. Well, congratulations on that move. Maybe then uh, let's pivot back towards your investment process back to those years in Scotland 
dealing with some of those uh, uh, Edinburgh fund managers. What was it that you took from their style of investing that you brought to your uh, your firm? The good thing about the Edinburgh fund managers is, um, and this is you know something that I learned over the years as well, not just from them, but but definitely something I noticed from them specifically is. Um, you know, so if you start a funds management firm in Australia, particularly doing global equities, everyone goes, oh, how can you? How can you possibly do it from Australia? You know, these companies are so far away and you don't have the information and why wouldn't we go with a fund manager in New York uh, or London, etc.? And 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 the Edinburgh fund managers had sort of bucked this trend for, for not just a couple of years, like 100 years. They'd bucked it by realising that funds management, you know, isn't a game of being over or underweight sectors or being over or underweight countries. It's... The equity market's a game of very few winners and lots of losers. And your job is to find those very few winners. And in, and at the end of the day, it's things like culture and relationships and management teams that that create these few winners. Everyone knows that, you know, smartphones, when they came along, were big. You know, there was like 11 different companies or 20 different companies making smartphones, but Apple ended up being the biggest and the best. And I don't think it's because they got lucky. I think it's because they had the culture and the ownership profile to do it. And so... So it's not just about analysing the numbers, it's about the relationships and, that you make in, the, in your journey through this industry, the management teams you meet and the people that you want to back. And, and the Edinburgh Fund managers have worked this out and obviously a lot of other people have worked it out as well, but, but when you're stuck in these big cities, you can, you can get stuck in sort of this under or overweight game. And yeah, so from our point of view, that's what we saw and what we liked and, and that's what we were doing as well at our previous firm and, 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 you know, we just continue to refine it over the years um, and, and that's basically the basis of Bunner. Yeah, look, and I think um, that approach obviously fits incredibly well with the hearts and minds approach in that we're looking for high conviction uh, managers that, uh, you know, are investing in stocks that will often be in the portfolio, particularly our core managers, which you are now one, um, you know, hopefully for, for, for many, many years. Um, so how do you think about those things? How do you pivot when something doesn't work out? quite as you expected it. I mean, obviously we're looking for those winners, but how do you keep challenging that thesis? Because uh, obviously they're not all going to be successful. No, they're definitely not. Yeah, so, so coming back to your point, you know, there's two constants that you have to accept when you invest, okay? One is that there's going to be very few winners and lots of losers, okay? That's the, that's the statistical facts of the stock market. You know, people on this call might not realise, but in the United States, over the last 90 years, there's been 25,300 companies listed. Yet, you know, the top 50 make up nearly 50% of the entire value created over that time horizon. Okay, so this is statistically a very hard game, and it's a game of very few winners and lots of losers. So you need to think about that when you're investing. You know, what is actually your best idea? What is actually the best idea? What is who has the best culture to get through this? Who's going to solve this problem for the longest period of time? And the second point you made was, which is incredibly important, which is, you know, concentration. You know, statistically, you can pick up a thousand papers that will all tell you the same thing. If you want to outperform for long periods of time, your portfolio needs to be concentrated. You can't have, you know, anything over 50 stocks, you're sort of getting too far. So those are your two constants when it comes to investing. So how do you make mistakes? How do you, you know, so you know those are the statistical facts, and then how do you fix your mistakes? Okay, so from our point of view, we use price. So we have a sort of a stop loss rule. It was one that I didn't invent. It came from my previous firm and, and you know, my previous boss came up with this and I thought it was really clever, uh, which was, you know, if a company falls 20% from peak or from cost, you don't have to sell it, but you should review it. You should review it straight away. You know, so you've invested in smartphones. You know, at the time you probably bought BlackBerry and, well, we did buy BlackBerry, HTC and Apple. Two of them went to zero and one of them went up 16 times, right? So... 
So your job is to recognise when you've made a mistake. And so we find if any company falls 20% from peak or from cost, it's subject to a review. We're not forced to sell it, but we're forced to review it. We're forced to look at it and decide, has the investment case changed? And even if we decide to keep it, we'll keep it for like, say, 30 days. And in 30 days' time, if it's still fallen 20% from peak, you'll review it again. In 30 days' time, you review it again. 30 days' time, you review it again. And eventually you realise that, you know, guess what? We don't really know what's going on in China at the moment. So why do we still own shares in Tencent? Or, you know, we don't. We are worried that PayPal might be getting disintermediated by Apple Pay here or that the touchscreen e-keyboard's not the one or that eBay's not the e-commerce winner. And so this happens time and time again. Um, and we find this process is very useful. And I'd just put it to anyone listening that anyone who's a private investor, and I can assure you that I was for a long period of time, has a stock that's fallen 90%. They had bought it, they'd fallen 90%. It's currently sitting in the bottom drawer and they can't bring themselves to look at it. And, and, and so from our point of view, we just force ourselves to look at it a lot earlier than, say, other people would. And, and that's how we try to avoid mistakes. And what's your view on private versus public markets? I mean, I, I do think that public markets are increasingly run by machines to some extent, I mean, and, and which has increased volatility around quarterly earnings and, you know, is it a beat or is it a miss? Uh, there, are, there are quant funds, there's index funds, and I think some, some high-quality businesses are staying private longer. What, what's your view on one versus the other? Yeah, so I think for both industries, there's one constant that's still the same, which is that if companies make more money every year, they're generally worth more over time and you know so both industries if they can if the companies continue to grow then the value of those companies continues to go up you know one does it in you know in the private markets whereby you know there's no mark to market every day and the other one is mark to market every day and so i'd agree that the mark to market market has definitely got more volatile in the last few years because of some of the things you talked about but the underlying core of what we're trying to do hasn't changed and and as long as we stay true to that then then we can, you know, you can you can find your way through these markets if that makes sense. And and I haven't seen anything to suggest that's changed. And then the second thing is just really, you know, investor preferences. You know, one provides you with liquidity daily. You know, with our funds, you know, if you buy them today, you know, our funds are quoted on the stock exchange, and and or or you fill in a form and you buy them today. You wake up tomorrow and you own twenty to forty of the best growth companies on the planet. But uh, we think, and the day you don't like us anymore, you just sell it and you get your money back. So that liquidity is very useful for people. Private markets, you know, you're effectively stuck there for six or seven years. But, you know, you, you generally probably get better returns for that, for, that, for that time horizon. And so this is really down to investor preferences, but the, the constant is the same. If the companies can grow their earnings over long periods of time, then their value will grow over time, and, and that's essentially what we're looking for. And I, but I can completely see why people would, would mix and match between the two. And you mentioned those structural growth themes that you look for. I'd be quite interested to hear what those structural themes are right now. So from our point of view, you know, at the end of the day, okay, so let's go back, you know, trying to solve the problem. The problem is there's going to be a few winners, lots of losers. You know, if you plot those 50 companies I told you about in the United States that have created nearly half the value, you know, if you look at them, not one of them was created by macroeconomics. So, so macroeconomics does not create the world's great companies you know it's always a structural change and and then usually you know some great leaders within those industries that, that manage to, to to execute from that structural change and so go back over time you know this is going to be as simple as things like big box retailing a lot of us are old enough to remember where the shops were like down the road and you know the hardware store was tiny now the hardware store is a big box outside of town and that's how you created home depot that's how you created um and walmart came out of that 
Uh, this can be as simple as, you know, software. Software moving to the cloud, you know, effectively made software 10 times more useful. Turned Microsoft from a big company into, into a giant. Digital advertising came along and created Google and Facebook. Um, and so it's always a big structural change that creates them, and, and these are the big winners. From our point of view, the big structural changes today are very much around AI. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about this today, but, but you know, the, the, you are in effectively the fourth tectonic shift of computing, and so we're going to shifting from, you know, mainframe PC to mobile to AI. You know, you just get exponential semiconductor demand. Uh, as you connect everything to the internet, and then that data has to be processed. So semiconductors are a big area for us, or we call it high-performance computing. Cloud computing continues to grow dramatically, probably only in its second or third innings is another great area. And, and interestingly, you know, you still, you know, as much as we just had the public-private conversation, you know, Google's been listed since 2005, and it's still growing its earnings at 15% per annum since then, and its revenue at double digits since then. And so that's like 18 years later. So even things like, you know, Google and Netflix in internet disruption still have runway in front of them, despite the fact that, you know, they've been listed for quite some time. And beyond that, the only other big areas that we think are really interesting that are not tech related is very much around climate change or decarbonisation. You know, it's pretty clear that we've reached a tipping point in decarbonisation and we think a lot of winners are going to come out of that. Um, and particularly ones that, you know, are much smaller than, say, some of these tech companies. So we think this is you know, for us, this is a really exciting area because you get to find really small companies that potentially, you know, can go up five or ten times in value. And, you know, we pitched one of them a couple of years ago at Son being on Semiconductor, which has continued to power on since then. And the last big area is just retail. Retail, consumer, you know, there's always great companies doing great things in consumer and, and, and definitely the athleisure industry is, is going through a great structural growth trend post-COVID as we basically all give up on suits. And there's no tie and jacket on here, Charlie. <laughs> you know, the world has moved on. Yeah, so from our point of view, you know, trainers, suits, athleisure is a great structural growth area. And there's some really good companies in that space that we like at the moment. Very good. Very good. So maybe just looking back, obviously trying to find these companies, if you do find them, they compound incredibly over many years. But there will always be times when the, the market just says we're going in a different direction. You know, as a fund manager, you never outperform every year. There are tough times. And so I presume, given your style of investing, that 2022 was quite tough, um, even though that a lot of those companies continued to perform incredibly well. The valuations the market was prepared to pay came back as interest rates increased, and they probably increased a lot more than either you or I would have predicted at the time. How did you feel through that process? How did you cope with it? How, how did the team feel? Just maybe walk us through it. From our point of view, I mean, you know, one in every five years, you get to get made look really stupid in this industry. And, and definitely 2022 is that year for us. I think what you just had to realise, and, and we did thankfully realise very early on in January, was that the interest rates were going to go up a lot. So from our point of view, you know, there's two things you're trying to work out here, which is do companies grow over long periods of time? And, you know, that bit compounding is, is as we talk, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. And then the second bit is the valuation you pay for that. To be fair, if you get the compounding bit right, it actually doesn't matter what valuation you pay over a very long period of time. But over a short period of time, it does. It does. And 2022 came in set up where rates were very low, multiples were very high. And if rates went from zero to five, then multiples were going to go down. Um, once you work that bit out, which we did in January, we raised a lot of cash. We raised roughly 40% cash in our main funds. Um, that stop loss process I talked to you about earlier came in very handy on on some of the higher multiple growth stocks or, or definitely some of the smaller caps where we sort of lost confidence that they would be able to continue to grow or acquire customers in this environment. So that came in very handy. We raised a lot of cash. 
But ultimately throughout the year, we just recognised that, you know, nothing's really changed here. Rates are just going to go from zero to five and we needed the rates to stop going up. Now, admittedly, at the start of the year, we probably thought they'd go to zero to two or zero to three. We didn't think it'd go all the way to five. And so that pressure stayed on all year until rates peaked in October. And as soon as rates peaked in October, you know, stocks just did what they do best, which is go back to following earnings. Um, and so from that point of view, over any sort of medium term view, you know, the shift to AI, the shift to the decarbonisation of the planet, the consumer companies that we talked about who are executing well, they, they're just going to keep winning. And so you just had to diverge from the rate pressure, which is now over. And then secondly, you had to work out whether the rate pressure was going to equal earnings pressure. And, and what we've seen more clearly, particularly in the last six, four months, is these companies are just so much more powerful in terms of earnings growth than, than even we thought. And I think we, we massively, we, we constantly underestimate um, in this industry that we always try to see, put the economy and apply it to the stock market. And, and the S&P 500 is not really the stock market. It hasn't been for a long time. And you, you try to apply that outlook on rates and the economy to Google, and then Google sort of just cuts costs and finds its way out of this. And so does Meta. And, you know, Microsoft launches into AI and suddenly everyone wants these products. And so we sort of underplay human ingenuity and overplay the economy. And, and what generally works out is human ingenuity comes out and wins. And, and I think that's what we're seeing again so far this year. So from our point of view, nothing really changed. We just had to manage the volatility and, and, and more importantly, you know, just get to the other side of what was, you know, probably a once in 10 or once in 15 year adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Like to say, you know, congratulations. You've been, I think, probably our best performing conference fund stock picker. And uh, we've now welcomed you as one of our core managers, which is fantastic. What is it that resonates with you about the Heart to Minds uh, mission? Okay, so so here at Munro Partners, we do run a foundation, for instance, and and you know, a percentage of our revenue goes to the Munro Foundation, and we like you, you know, donate that to to causes that that, that we care about, and and for Hearts and Minds, obviously, that's what this fund is doing. Also, you know, it's a certain portion of you know management fees, etc., go to the things that that, that Hearts and Minds is is interested in, which also, you know, align with our goals. But but I think for me, the big thing that I like about it is that you can apply your skill set to solve problems, not just for your clients, but for, for, for other for other things that need solved in the world. And so being able to use your skill set to to improve the outcomes for hearts and minds, you know, ultimately hopefully allows the fund to grow. And the, the more the fund grows, the more fees that you can allocate to the things that Hearts and Minds cares about. And so it's really just being able to, you know, rather than just giving money to, to apply your skills, to leverage that a bit more. And so that's that's the thing that resonates the most with us. It's a wonderful um, organisation, which I think, you know, helps helps everyone. So a win, win, win. So um, thank you for being part of it. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. We're now going to dive into two of the stocks that are within the Hearts and Minds High Conviction Portfolio uh, that you guys have recommended. And firstly, uh, NVIDIA, um, which actually is a relatively new position, but it's certainly been in the headlines recently. And perhaps you can start by setting the scene a little as to why semiconductors, uh, which is ultimately what NVIDIA produces are so important for artificial intelligence, which is obviously all the rage at the moment. Yeah, so the first thing I should do is put my hand up here and apologize that we, we didn't put this in a bit earlier. We did, you know, so, so what, what sort of happened here? We've always liked NVIDIA. I've liked NVIDIA for a very long period of time. I think um, we've owned the stock sort of nearly seven years now. It was a very difficult stock to own last year in 2022. I think I got up on a different podcast at the start of 2022 and said NVIDIA is going to be the biggest company in the world. And it, 
it fell 61% and has since rallied like 300%. So, so it's a very difficult stock to hold. It's very volatile. Um, but it is, you know, we think genuinely a chance of being the biggest company in the world. And let me just explain why. So semiconductors, you know, AI sort of went from, semiconductors went from sort of the most hated sector in the market last year because we were going through an economic slowdown and, you know, PC demands weak, um, smartphone demands weak, cloud compute demand was weak. And, you know, it was, it was, it was tough all year and it, it wasn't looking great for 2023, to be honest. And then in December, along came this little app called ChatGPT. And ChatGPT, you know, everyone thought it was pretty cool. You could write a poem about your dad, which is what my kids did, and, you know, read that at Christmas, thought it was quite funny, did rap songs. Um, you know, that's interesting. But, but ultimately, it, it really exploded for us in, in February when Microsoft integrated OpenAI into, into their new Bing and said they were going to launch their co-pilot products, um, which is their co-pilot products across all of their software suite. And they also increased their CapEx on the cloud dramatically. They've increased it by 50% for the year. So they're going to spend $50 billion on data center infrastructure in 2023. And that basically laid down the gauntlet to every other big tech company on the planet to go, damn, we need to follow. So Google started investing, Amazon started investing, and every single corporate on the planet sat down and just went, what are we going to do with these AI products? How do we invest? And so... We would argue that ChatGPT, when you look back, will be sort of the iPhone moment for AI. This is what Jensen Wan says at NVIDIA. This will be the iPhone moment where basically people, AI has been around for a long time. You know, it's been, you know, it, it predicts what Netflix shows you want to watch or it helps your car park or helps do the lane change in, in your car, etc. But But now people can see that generative AI will work on everything. Um, it'll work on for companies, it'll work in how you create pictures, it works on how you create music, it'll work for banks in how you do credit. And so we think this is the big fourth tectonic shift. And when this happens, as it happened with mobile before, and as it happened with PC before that, um, there's always a big couple of winners that take all that share and, 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 and we think NVIDIA is that company. So what is it about NVIDIA that you think has that long-term competitive advantage? But, you know, what, what is the IP that they have that others can't catch up? Yeah, so this is um, a little bit complicated, but I'll try and explain it quickly. So we've been meeting the company for a long period of time, and they're effectively always said the same thing the whole way. What NVIDIA specializes is in this thing called accelerated compute. And so what they realized a very long time ago was that Moore's Law would, would eventually run out, and, and it's currently forecast to run out you know, just beyond 2030. But if anything, it's it's beginning to slow down. And so what they said is that, you know, a CPU, which is a, a, a you know, the standard thing that an Intel would make that goes in your, on your PC should be combined with a GPU, a graphics processing unit. And the graphics processing unit and the CPU go together to create accelerated computing. And so NVIDIA has always been in the lead in these, in these GPUs or graphic processing units, um, and people would know them from video games, right? So, so essentially, a CPU has sort of eight cores in it, and a GPU has thousands. Uh, you use them in video games because they help make graphics. They help make lots of little decisions really quickly so that graphics can move the whole time across your video screen. But in the end, that's been very useful for AI because AI is exactly the same. You know, how do you make lots of what you ask, Charlie, at ChatGPT is different to what I ask. And, and you know, every AI instance is different. And so, so what we now know is accelerated computing, which has grown sort of slowly to about 10% of all servers now, will probably go to 100% of all servers. And, and to be fair, Jensen and NVIDIA have been saying this since day one, but it's just had that moment. And so now everyone realizes that AI is going to be big. We need to build 
AI data centers. AI data centers have to be accelerated. To do that, you have to combine GPUs and CPUs, and you have to do it with software um, to get these things to work. And NVIDIA just has a massive lead here. So they've got roughly an 85% market share in GPUs and accelerated compute. And they also have the dominant software that you need to program on this. And and so, and maybe if, if, if that was all a bit confusing, I'll just go back to what I said earlier, which, which, which hopefully lays out the picture. In every compute cycle, there's always just a couple of big winners. And so if you think about it, you know, when the PC came along, I, we went from mainframe to PC because computers got fast enough to do that. PCs was dominated by Intel, Intel. And there was also two operating systems, which was Windows and Mac. When we shift to mobile, and mobile computing came along, that was dominated by Apple. And Apple took 85% of the profits and the whole supply chain, you know, Qualcomm and everything inside it. And now we've got to AI, right? So this is the big shift. We connect everything on the planet to the internet and we process that data in data centers really, really quickly. And all those data centers are going to have to be accelerated. NVIDIA is set up to be the big AI winner. We think it's the Apple of AI. It's the hardware software model. Yes, there'll be competitors, but you probably won't get more than one or two operating systems and the competitors are a long way behind. So as those dollars are spent today, they're, they're all going to NVIDIA. And I have to ask you, I guess, uh, whilst we're talking about AI, how does it make you feel? Are you uh, excited? And I expect that that probably is the case. Or scared, as other people are, of the, of the ramifications? Um, look, I can see why people are scared. There's, you know, there's, I can see that you know, these are healthy conversations to have. But no, actually incredibly excited. As I said before, you know, I was actually in Microsoft's office, you know, so this is, you know, a couple of months ago. So June 2023, we need to timestamp this. Um, and, you know, we had this whole conversation about AI and they were just excited and we were excited. And at the end of the meeting, I just thanked them by saying, thank God you've come up with these products because otherwise we would have had to talk about the macro for a whole hour and that would have just been really boring. And then we went down to see NVIDIA and they showed us all this stuff as well and you know, we're literally just at the start and this is going to run for three to five years minimum. Uh, yes, the stocks will get ahead of themselves. And so, you know, NVIDIA is a little bit hard here because, you know, we are obviously a little bit late, but we definitely don't think it's too late uh, based on the numbers that we can run and, and happily run you through them. And they've got, they had a blowout quarter in the last quarter, which was what really got the stock moving. Do they have the capacity to keep that growth moving forward over the next few quarters? Well, yeah, so that's the good news. So the answer is they don't, no. So they're capacity constrained. And as capacity keeps going up, they'll keep growing. So maybe just to give people a, to, to step back a bit on, on the quarter. So as I said, when Microsoft announced these products, we're like, wow, this is a big deal. Like they're going all in on this. And then Google announced all theirs. So they went all in. And then Amazon announced all theirs. They went all in. And we're like, well, this all leads to NVIDIA. And so we invested, you know, we lifted our weight quite dramatically. And and we should have bought it for starts of mind before the quarter, but, but, you know, we bought it internally. Sorry, we bought more internally. We already owned it. But then when that result came out, I mean, it really blew people away. And just to give you an idea, you know, you know, consensus had to lift their numbers by 80% for the year, 8-0, not 8, 80. And there's 26 people who cover this, and it's a top 10 company on the planet. It added $250 billion in market cap in one day, and it hasn't given it back. And it was cheaper after the results than it was before the results. That must be the biggest market cap move in history. It is. And so from our point of view, like I just, I, I suppose I would just stress to people the reason why we're doing this is because A, this has just started. And B, this is a really, really big deal. Like we're not talking about micro caps here. We're talking about some of the biggest companies in the world lifting their earnings by 80%. Uh, Microsoft just launched their Copilot products. Their Copilot products are going to be charged out at $30 a user. 
There's 400 million people in the world using Microsoft products. If 20% of them take it up, that's a 12% earnings upgrade for Microsoft. If 100% of them take up, it's a 50% earnings upgrade for Microsoft. And it's the second biggest company on the planet. So these are big earnings upgrades for big companies as the biggest companies in the world go effectively all in on AI. And this has just started. Now, yes, this will get priced in quite quickly in some cases and the stocks will get ahead of themselves, but this will run for a number of years. And so the risk here, if you want to know the risk, the big risk is that no one uses these products, is that we all get them and they don't work. And that's definitely a medium term risk. But I don't think that's a risk in the next 18 months to two years because every company in the world is basically petrified, as you point out, from what these products might do to their business. And so they're investing in front of it. And, and I think you're right to point out the fear because the fear is, oh, look, you know, is it going to kill us all one day? Well, maybe it does, but I think it's highly unlikely. I think the bigger fear is like, are you going to get disintermediated by this? And, and we should look at this and invest in it quite heavily. And that's what everyone's going to do. Absolutely. It does feel very much early days. So maybe switching on to a, a second stock, and I think this is one you've owned for uh, a very long time, and that is Amazon. I, I, I was uh, guilty of owning some e-commerce stocks uh, through the pandemic, which did extremely well. And then I think uh, everyone thought that this was a shift online that was was here to stay. And I, I personally think that online still has uh, a long way to go in terms of penetration. I, I, I personally hate shopping, so I do all of my shopping online. And, and penetration is still relatively low, but there's no question that there was a snapback post-COVID. Um, so what are your current thoughts on Amazon and how they're positioned? Yeah, so from our point of view, Amazon, obviously we put in, I think, in December for you guys. Um, and it was actually, look, look, Amazon, you know, is definitely not the exciting stock it once was, you know, when we bought it all the way back in 2014. You know, back then, you know, e-commerce was new. I was, I was, as I said, living in Edinburgh at the time and doing all my shopping on Amazon and just going, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know, they'll, they'll deliver fish, fish hooks to me within a day. Uh, and Australians probably at that time didn't really realise what Amazon was. Um, and in 2014, it was, you know, it was incredibly exciting stock and, you know, we've made more than 10 times our money on it since then. Obviously, COVID was great for that. And 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 now we would look at Amazon sort of as a turnaround story, to be honest, because they, they really did execute quite badly through the COVID period. Like a lot of these e-commerce companies, they, they thought that the, the inflection in e-commerce was permanent and that, you know, that it would accelerate from here, but it really was just a one-off. Um, they massively over-invested in distribution capabilities and, and warehouses. In fact, they doubled their warehouse footprint in the space of two years. And as they've got to the other side of COVID, you know, they've, they've, they've over-invested. They've got too much capacity. They've got too many people. You know, the retail business has not made any money now for eight quarters. So, so think about that. The second largest retailer in the world has lost money for eight quarters in a row. And, and we just don't think that's sustainable. And so in this case, the share price was very low. It's the lowest valuation we've ever had to pay for Amazon over the 10 years we've owned it. And, you know, we think people have mismodeled this. We think, you know, it's actually quite easy for Amazon to fix these problems. Not, not within a quarter or two, but on any sort of 12 or 18 month time horizon, you know, this is fixable. You should be able to run your retail business for a profit if you choose to. And they are saying they choose to. So this is really about just balancing the retail business out whereby the warehouse footprint matches the demand. We're not saying demand's going to explode again, but e-commerce should grow still faster than retail sales, so high single digits. And Amazon can return that business to profitability. And if it did, if it did, I mean, this is the amazing bit, you know, like 
you know, the entire Amazon business, even with cloud at running at a 30% margin, only runs at sort of a 5 or 6% margin. So, so you can easily get the earnings to sort of double and triple from here just by fixing up the retail business. And, and that's, that's the sort of the bet we're making on Amazon. And, and the timing was very good. So that's why we put it in your fund in December. Excellent. And um, yeah, when out of interest, so when you go and look at Amazon, do you get to meet the management? Uh, <laughs> How's that work? That is a great question. Okay, 10 years of owning Amazon. Today, you know, we'd probably have two, two to three hundred million dollars worth of stock. In Seattle, in the Microsoft office, I can see the Amazon office. Won't take a meeting. Will not take a meeting. 10 years have asked. So we talk to the IR occasionally in a group meeting, but physically, yeah, they, they are very, very reluctant to take meetings. They have been for a very long time. And again, you know, this is hopefully something they change under Andy Jassy. You know, like it's also important to flag that Amazon's gone through a, you know, so as I said, we talked to IR, but if anyone's read the Amazon earnings call, you know, they don't say anything. They just take six questions and move on. And there's sort of this arrogance that they've had for a long period of time. And I think, I think they need to move away from that because they, as I said, they did mis-execute. And, you know, this also happened at the time that Bezos was leaving and Andy Jassy was taking over. So he has this chance to put his footprint on this company and sort of do a bit of a Tim Cook, uh, like Tim Cook did at Apple. And I think at the price we paid for it, that was a good bet. I think it's a good bet that he will he will eventually... And, you know, we've, we get to speak to lots of people, you know, within the company and we have our relationships, you know, within people in Amazon Web Services and Amazon Retail who tell us what's going on, etc. But everyone who covers Amazon, by the way, is treated the same way. No one gets to... No one gets in there. And, and like, that's fair. That's one way they do it. But, but, but from our point of view, all signs point to the fact that Jassy's been working on this for about 18 months and we expect it to bear fruit, honestly, starting this quarter and hopefully throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. Look, it's a big ship to turn, I, I guess. Um, but, but retail is all about scale. So, you know, I think long term. It is a big tip to turn. But to remember, you know, it's been eight quarters. You know, we actually thought this would turn two quarters ago and it still hasn't. So it, it's going to, it should be too hard to turn, but they, they, they should be able to turn it. Excellent. Um, well, look, thanks very much for those two uh, insightful comments around Amazon and uh, NVIDIA. To finish up the, the podcast, I think um, one of the common themes uh, of our partners, both investors and scientists, is a real sense of innate curiosity. So right now, I know you listen to a lot of podcasts around various things. Is there a, you know, something, uh, maybe obviously apart from AI, uh, which is uh, a topic we've already discussed, but there is something out there that's really piqued your interest lately okay so yeah like i mean most of the time we spend is is spent thinking about the cultures and the ownership structures that create great businesses that's what i'm spending most of my time on so so we we didn't mention this at the start but monroe partners we set it up as a partnership okay so so a partnership is is whereby you know most of the people here at monroe you know and again looking at our edinburgh peers you know we we sort of give them equity in the business over time they earn equity in the business and that equals profit share and they get profit share and then when when they leave they give it back and they give it to the next person and what that does is it aligns everybody on the goals of the business if that makes sense so in my opinion the biggest mistake you can make as a fund manager is to ipo your business because it's you know you let all the talent walk out the door and you make it very hard to attract new talent and so from our point of view you know we've tried to solve for that and we've looked at some of the best funds managers in the world and they're all partnerships that's how you last 100 years, right? And so the podcasts I listen to 
or the stuff that I'm interested in is just looking at these great businesses, looking at their ownership structures, looking at how they're aligned, okay? So we just talked about NVIDIA. You know, Jensen Wong still owns 3% of NVIDIA. The vision that they've got today was the same four guys when they started it. It's literally the same vision. They have been working towards this accelerated compute thing for 20 years. They thought there's a better way to solve this problem. Um, Amazon's obviously going through a transition, but most of the success was created by, you know, Jeff Bezos and his, and his you know, unwavering pursuit of keeping customers happy. That's what he did. And he probably tried to keep them over happy through the COVID period. Um, but, you know, and so it's these, I think when you get down to it, and the thing that I find curious when we're looking at things is, is every great business, and maybe I'll finish where I started, every great business is normally created around the simplicity of solving a simple problem. And then the simplicity of that needs to be attached with the simplicity of the ownership structure that aligns everybody internally towards solving that problem. And the guys who get it right get that right, and everyone else gets it wrong along the way. I, they, they get distracted, they try to solve too many other problems, or their ownership structure doesn't align them enough and they all end up you know, bickering along the way. Um, I always joke, you know, somewhere in a bar in California are the guys from Ask Jeeves and they're looking at each other having a couple of drinks going, we, you know, we missed it by that much. You know, Google's like the biggest search engine in the world and Ask Jeeves is nothing, right? That's, that's the stakes you're playing for uh, and that's the stakes we're playing for at Munro too. So that's the stuff we think about quite a lot and how do we align ourselves on our goals and how do we invest in people who are correctly aligned along their goals. And if you do that right, then everything else is just time. Um, and so from our point of view, that's the stuff we, we get most curious about, or at least I get most curious about. Fantastic. And look, congratulations on building Monroe Partners. It's a wonderful business. Um, and thank you very much for being part of Hearts and Minds here today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. Thanks, Anne, and thanks for all the good work you guys are doing. We, we, we really enjoy being a part of it. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode. What a fantastic conversation with Nick Griffin, the founding partner and CIO of Munro Partners. I hope you found this episode as insightful as we did. A huge thanks to Nick for his time today and his ongoing support and commitment to Hearts and Minds. We'll be back next week with another episode. To ensure you never miss a conversation, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And better yet, send it on to a friend or a colleague you think that will enjoy this discussion. Your support is much appreciated. Until next time, stay curious. This is a Hearts and Minds podcast in partnership with Equity Mates Media. This communication has been prepared by Hearts and Minds Investment Limited, ABN 61 628 In preparing this publication, the investment objectives, financial situation or particular needs of an individual have not been considered. You should not rely on the opinions, advice, recommendations and other information contained in this publication alone. The inclusion of third-party content does not in any way imply any form of endorsement by HM1 of the products or services provided by persons or organisations who are responsible for the third-party content. This publication has been prepared to provide you with general information only. It is not intended to take the place of professional advice and you should not take action on specific issues in reliance on this information. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.